0: Welcome everyone to the FS podcast. I'm Dylan Roberts, and today I have one of my good friends, Simon. Uh Simon, how are you doing? Good. How are you, Dylan? I'm good. How do you pronounce your last name? I always say Grongberg, but I don't never know if that's the right way. And I've known you for like That's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, and and in, in
1: German you would say Groneberg, Crown Mountain.
0: Yeah, there's no way I can do that. Well, um, where are you right now? Tell us a little bit about where you are and um, what's, what's currently going around, around
1: you right now. Yeah, um, I'm sitting in my home office in Berlin. Um, the background is unfortunately not my real office. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, we are currently self-isolating slash quarantining ourselves in, to make sure that we don't get Kung Flu. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's been been a long month for us, or month and a half by now. And Germany just decided to keep these distancing measures up until the end of August, which is just uh, in right now. So we will have quite some... Quite a lot of lord of the rings marathons ahead of us until this is over for sure
0: yeah i know <laughs> um yeah once you're done with lord of the rings marathon i don't know what you go into star wars i guess the old ones yes uh
1: the prequels yes because they're still better than the what we ones. have recently i think yeah, I don't want to talk about the recent uh, Star Wars movies. It really ruins my mood. <laughs>
0: no, I agree. Yeah, it. Um, I don't know. It just too, it felt like too many people were putting their hands into the movie, and yeah. you can you could just tell. But yeah, so I know you started a a new podcast. Can you tell me a little yep. bit about that and how's that been going?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. I started this project inspired by you and some some other friends,
0: um, which which is called
1: staying at home. And basically, I talk with people that uh, I think it's interesting to have a conversation with about not only staying at home and how we manage that, but also how, you know, people that do jobs that are basically traveling constantly you know how their life is impacted or also how how pre-corona era uh, their life has looked like so it's the the whole intent is basically to have an hour-long vacation from breaking news and all of that and just uh, talk majorly about positive things and um, give a little yeah motivation boost for everyone having to do so much home office lately
0: no that's great but where are some examples that you've had on your podcast in my
1: most recent episode which is episode number three evo because the first recording got lost and i had to do it again and fortunately my guest was so kind to um, give me another hour of his time i spoke to the porsche brand ambassador timo bernhardt who not only has won the 24 hours of le mans three times but also has broken the nurburgring records uh, the unbreakable 35 years old nurburgring record which i'm as you know i'm i'm absolutely obsessed with cars and motorsports it has barely anything to do with uh, nascar and all of that stuff which is the popular uh, stuff especially where where you live but Mm. um yeah it's more it's really high-end sports, some of these cars have are more advanced than than Formula One. Um, just to give you an example, the, the car that Timo was driving when he won Le Mans and the World Championships also broke the world record on the Nordschleife. Um, it's like 1,600 pounds to 1,200 horsepower, so in a four-cylinder engine <laughs> with the battery in it. So Dang. um yeah. He he like there's this absolutely crazy, crazy video of of this track record which uh looks like you're watching a fast forward. Um, fast forward uh, video clip and he does like 370 kilometers per per hour that's like 400 bald eagles per cheeseburger i don't know what that uh, (laughs) (laughs) translates into in american units but yeah dude is absolutely amazing and we spoke about one of his highest highs in his career and the lowest lows when he had and an absolute uh, devastating accident and what uh, this has done the, the PTSD has done with his uh, me- mental capability and how this turned out to be something positive for him yeah. um yeah was was really really interesting and shameless self-plug here if uh, we gonna put this one in the show notes um but yeah it was quite uh quite fun and i get to talk to people that um, i'm a super fan of and it's basically an hour-long conversation and i absolutely absolutely
0: love it yeah podcast really makes sense for you just because you are just connected in a lot of ways and once things cool down with the virus uh, you should definitely keep going uh, you, i think there's definitely a need for more quality content not just tiger king Um, which everyone is just going crazy about. Um, and I didn't like the bonus episode that they did. I thought it kind of, I haven't seen it yet. Um, it just, it, 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 they kind of just lessened the documentary in my opinion. Um, you know, it's nothing crazy more than I learned. Um, but, yeah it's is a uh, interesting anyways just storytelling in general i think um which you've always done but before it was photography and that's kind of how we knew yeah. each other can you tell me a little bit about photography and that's kind of how you started out in the media and just visual journalism world well before before i knew, knew- um before
1: we were friends basically I wasn't really into the whole journalism I've always dreamed of it you know looking at pictures and photographs of icons like Steve McCurry for instance you know you yeah. always you always want to be that guy or your best version in in what he he did and um I started in 2010 yeah 10 years ago Uh, with photography and, um, didn't really, um, stop still today. I absolutely find still imaging much more interesting than video, um, because it's something that needs to convince with only one frame especially with all the quantity that we have in two environments with so many bazillion pictures on Instagram and Facebook, yeah. you know, to, to create something that people look at more than half a second is, is a, a big challenge. And, um, I started really street photography when I was living in, in um, or street slash documentary photo- photography when I was living in Jerusalem, where I met Christian and you, um because i was outside of a usual environment and outside of my things that i knew and this developed ultimately through fs to um you know us traveling across the world and taking seeing some incredible scenes and being able mm-hmm. to take pictures of uh, absolutely crazy locations and while we were doing that, I also started my, my big passion project, which was uh, photography in motorsports in Europe, which, you know, as a child, I always, you know, I, when I learned about the 24 hours of Le Mans, um, I dreamed seeing these pictures of these Porsches with these, you know, in the night doing pit stops and everything. I dreamed to just go there once in my life. And I now have been there three for three years and have been uh, helping an Aston Martin factory driver that I still work with today um, to tell his personal story of his journey during these races. And, um, yeah, we'll has, continue, continue has that to do interest- so
0: has that industry been affected from
1: COVID 19 oh oh absolutely so not only that um we can't go racing and we don't get this little sports like you know watching basketball on tv every weekend kind of thing as the audience but these people um one of the um, team bosses that I interviewed on my second episode—he—he he basically is the Lamborghini factory team, also competing in in the United States at IMSA. He had to lay off 100% of his staff.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, and that's that's Austria, one of the countries that have not been as devastated as, let's say, neighboring Italy or other places. And he had to basically fire everyone with a guarantee that he could rehire his people once the business is up and running. But like airplanes lose money when they don't fly. Race cars lose money when they don't race. Um, And, you know, like this whole sponsorship deals that are dependent on media exposure and everything. Um the financial commitment to do like a let's say Daytona race is per car eight hundred thousand US dollars. Mm-hmm. And you gotta make that money back somehow, especially when you when you're unable to win the race and when there's like hundred cars competing, you go figure what your chances are. You know? So um the the numbers game in, in motorsports and how they've been affected and these teams have been affected is is a very fantastic illustration of what's happening to the American economy, to the German economy right. or any any other uh, economy, really, because what we took as guaranteed um, guaranteed work, more or less. You know, you could always find something to do if you really tried right now. Even when you have a full time job, um, I you know, my my nine to five is working in financial technologies. It's um, even if whatever you do is great, but people are currently busy with surviving and no one really wants to look to the future more than seven days from today because that's too much of a risk to look further than that at the moment.
0: Yeah, I know Germany and Europe has been in doing isolation longer than the US has. And just a sense in the US, it kind of feels like, If they have to go through May through this, you know, people are going to lose their minds in this country. Yeah. So in Germany, has it been close to two months or just a month and a half or something like that?
1: So as the U.S., we are a federal uh, republic or federal state with uh, somewhat autonomous, um, you know, states. Uh, within that uh, bigger Mm -hmm. thing. And every state had to decide when they do the It's not really a lockdown. They call it social distancing measure, whatever. Um, But you do get punished for up to 30 grand if you leave the house without any need, Um, which is nothing in comparison to Italy, where you get charged for murder when you leave your house. But yeah, um, it's I don't know how long this will be going on, but as soon people really stop, I live next to a park at a lake and I see people picnicking, hanging out, uh, drinking, barbecuing all the time. And we will only get back to normality when these mentally limited people um, that just want to be dumb and they want to behave like a five-year-old that got their candy taken away. Uh, once they stop going out without need, then we all can go back to work and go back to, to what we, what we love in our normal lives. And yeah. this hasn't happened yet.
0: I agree. It's just information overload. And, uh, I always think about if this virus happened, you know, 15 years ago or before so- social media, I wonder what it'd be like. And so this is the kind of things that I think about in covering this virus, now has become so complicated, even though it's so easy to post information, whether it's actually capturing it through video or interviewing people or connecting with people, yeah, and then producing it and then having distribution instantly almost kind of hurts it now, just because there's just so much information um and that's and that was happening even before this virus. Ha- happen. Um, but now you really see it, uh, yeah. as COVID-19 continues to be the main topic of conversation and, you know, and rightfully so it should be the main topic right now.
1: Yeah. And, and what, what's very interesting, I don't know how it is, uh, for you in your, uh, in, in Texas, you know, in your, uh, environment, mm-hmm. like a lot of people there was a lawyer in Germany that uh, tried to suit the government for stealing her freedom, and uh, she got so paranoid by everything that she hmm. ended up in an institution um, like there's just the quantity of stuff that it's, uh, you know, like you watch any of the big news outlets or local news, it's full of that. And it's for many people. it's So hard to filter out what applies to me? And what's yeah. um, let's say it a little bit extreme. What's other people's problems, but not mine. Yeah. And then, in, in no. the age of social media, I think we right now see in real time stuff that we, um, that we, when we look at big historic events, and you know, you're sort of like, yeah, why didn't they do anything about that, or why didn't they stand up, or why didn't they totally uh, follow these good instructions you know like it's just we see in real time what people think mm-hmm. uh what they what they want to communicate and not always um it is a good thing that everyone gets to speak uh, with a platform about everything because not everyone is qualified for you know speaking
0: publicly <laughs> about uh health health uh situations yeah <clears throat> i think the like i When I got my updates on anything virus, I I watched Joe Rogan. He had a few experts on, and that kind of gave me the knowledge of just kind of understanding how viruses work and, you know, their thoughts uh, and opinions of, you know, if it's old people or younger people, and even the experts who study diseases their majority of their career, they still don't really know what's, yeah. what's going on. So my opinion, and I think a lot of people is I'm, I'm listening to all sides and, but having an understanding that we won't really know until probably in a year or so yeah. of the actual story. And I think that's yeah. been lost in content in general is we don't have the patience and that's hard to do because something breaking news where you have people dying, that's hard to do. And you want to yeah. put out information as fast as you can. So it's interesting time. Absolutely. And I think one of the
1: positive effects of us that are not physically affected by this, um, I realize I, you know, structure my day more because you know <laughs> every day would be would be the same I spend more time with my family uh, making phone calls with them and I'm I also finally are able to to do some some hobbies like yeah. I I wasn't bored for a single day since all of this started and um, you know for, from the many downsides that everything has I think in some way it also brings us um brings us back together and connect
0: more more deeply with each other. And, um, and you live in the city and you're like, yeah. like for me, I'm super lucky. I live like in the countryside, I have space. I can go in my backyard and connected to my backyard. I can even go out, you know, and hike if I wanted to. Um, and then, you know, the only really thing that, and I've been working from home yep. for my whole life. I have a home office. Uh, so yeah, I think for a lot of freelancers, we're used to this. We, we, we learned, um, how to manage our time when you can be distracted by a lot of different things if you're not at an office, but you live in a, you know, big city and I'm lucky that I have space to, uh, roam around in and and work on things but even for you you live in a you know berlin where you don't have as much room
1: yeah and i you know i got lucky in a unfortunate situation because we live at the very border um of the city like after us there's just a forest and then there's nothing for for a long time but still here since it's like somewhat a tourist attraction and people come here because it's so beautiful and everything Um, you know it's we decided we are just not leaving the house until we exactly know what this virus is and what it does to people or Mm -hmm. until we know that um, you know we developed somewhat immunity to it Um, I think it's playing everyone needs to decide for themselves obviously you know right um, ultimately but I think it's a little bit playing Russian roulette with um, with going out and um, you know following your daily routines, eating you know even getting uh, drive-through at McDonald's or whatever you know stuff that was so normal just a few weeks ago. Right now we are saying, nope, yeah. <laughs> and I think for, for us that's the right decision, and we have a really um good piece about it for sure. Even yeah. if we are in a big city but we live outside but we still don't leave because five thousand people in the city alone are tested positive. And um just looking at the statistics, um yeah, I do not think it's a good idea to leave the house when you don't need to.
0: No, for sure. It's um it's just the unknown. But but yeah, I just kind of transitioning uh, I remember. Can you kind of remember when we first met? I just remember I borrowed your leather jacket at a bar. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I still have the picture though. Oh yeah, same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I it was really um a, a magical moment uh, if you wanna name it that because you know as, as I told as I told you earlier, I always want to do something meaningful with. Uh, my mm. art or my hobby or how however we we're gonna call this and um I already got more routine and more um access to to this through being being in in Jerusalem and you know having the opportunity to be in a new environment which is always inspiring and then I met Christian in the media school that we both went to for a short time and um besides telling me that i should not waste my time at media school he also told me about this texan guy that he knew and you know that you went to iraq and you did all of this uh absolutely crazy stuff um mm-hmm. i think that was the time when uh the vicar of baghdad was released on vice yeah iraq, was probably Iran. around that time yeah and yeah.
0: we did some stuff during the gaza conflict in 2012. Um, And Christian and I kind of had some mutual friends there. And then I think that when I met you was my second or third time to Israel and Palestine. Uh, And yeah, man, I miss Jerusalem. It would be hard for me to live there, but Jerusalem and Israel is, it's a very interesting place. And yeah. I appreciate it. I, what was it like for you to live there? Um, totally different. So I'm from a small
1: town, uh, where, where I'm from, we would say village to that, <laughs> uh, from a small village in the, uh, mountains of South, South Germany, a little bit south of Stuttgart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, life is very calm, very slow, which at that time I hated, you know, like you're growing up, you want to conquer the world and everything. Um, and then moving to, to Israel to volunteer in a kibbutz and, you know, like to get more sunshine and, you know, get a different, uh, lifestyle over there was a very impactful, impactful thing for me in my life. Because I think what's the most special thing about that place is that it's influenced by, you know, like Ashkenazi, by Arabics, by, you know, all of these different cultures and people and tribes, so to speak. And if you turn off the news and if you don't listen to people that just talk to hear themselves speaking about something, um, you actually get to adore this place because it's so multicultural. The food in there is probably one of the best uh, best quality foods you can get in the whole world because you get a little bit of everything you get Asian African European influences and um, because life can end so quick I think yeah um, people over there appreciate it more and not like in Germany we we always like to see the negative or not always but many times we like to see the negative in things because we live so well that we forgot how well we have so we get held up with small things Um, obviously doesn't apply to everyone but just like uh, to make an example i found for myself a much more um, yeah lively environment and um, a bigger blend of cultures and um, the where are you from is not asked out of fear or out of oh I don't know who you are I only know people with my same skin color where I'm from Uh, it's more about uh yeah celebrating basically the the right. diverse um diverse elements of that
0: and look when i went there's definitely parts of israel where it's very difficult to understand it's one of those places where you have to go visit yourself and you're yeah. going and and know the right people to take yeah. you around cuz otherwise you can you can travel there and especially if you go on these type of groups tourism anything like that it's really hard for you to see the real and that's like with any country yeah i think I, it,
1: I can i i can sorry to cut you off no here, no, no i, go I ahead. can give you a perfect example of that my wife and i went to our honeymoon to egypt because we are history geeks and you know um i think um all of the egyptian temples and stuff that they built is super interesting But we were part of a tourist group uh, because we didn't really want to wanted to do logistics on a honeymoon. Right. right. Um, We did the same. Yeah. We just rushed through the places and we never got the time to breathe and, you know, get a sense for the feeling. uh, Sorry, sense for the location and the feeling for the vibe there, because you always have to rush in and out. And uh, that's. I I bet the same when you go to Israel with a big tourist group and you don't have time for yourself to explore or you don't know anyone local that can take you to a cool burger place or whatever, you know, you you might uh, like, but
0: um, it takes
1: time. You got to be there for a while to really see it and understand it.
0: That is true. If you are, if like, if my parents went, like I would be able to link them up with good people and they don't have to do so... But Israel, uh, there is a lot of good groups that could do it. They're just staying for a week. I totally get it. But you're not yeah. going to understand the real of the country, of the Palestinian side. And so uh, so it is one of the most multicultural places. Like even on Jaffa Street in Jerusalem, I was sitting with yeah. Israelis, uh, Americans, Jordanians, and Palestinians. Now not all Palestinians can go across, you know, there is a real, you know, there's a real I don't want to say division, um, uh, because there is a lot of meaning between that. <clears throat> but it is a very complicated country where it's it's difficult to explain. And yep. we've both covered you know, the between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, and as one of those places, yes, a photograph and video can help explain it, but it's almost better to, okay, here's, here's some stories, but maybe when you have some time, it's actually possible to go to those countries and actually see it for itself. Israel is very different in that way where yeah. it's Tel Aviv and Jerusalem are very, very safe and you can go there and really educate yourself on, you know, you're not going to be able to go to Gaza. Gaza is a whole different type of place.
1: Yeah, but you also don't go to Detroit at night when you don't <laughs> have to. <you, so. laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, certain things you probably want to avoid mm-hmm. uh, even in your uh, own home country. Like there are
0: certain areas where you right. just yeah, don't and, want to go. And I feel for, some, for the Palestinian youth, you know, like especially, you know, the low-income families who just have to get permission for everything. Uh, And they grow up with a wall in front of them, even though the wall has decreased a lot of um, security issues. And so I don't think a lot of people understand that, but there's also some side effects of uh, just a wall being in front of you. And so do you remember covering protest of the youth, Uh, Palestinian youth and the IDF
1: yeah yeah Uh, we were there with one of our good friends uh, uh, one of the locals and what is interesting to see is that a lot of these riots at least to my perspective seem very orchid orchestrated very routine in a way like some some nice uh, Friday afternoon activity of some sort and um, I don't believe that anything what what happens like that um really helps the people there you know, like if you wanna be a state, you gotta deal with borders easy as that <laughs> 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 but um yeah, I think everyone that is affected by any any sort of conflict like also on the on the Israeli side, you know there's this uh constant threat of people that are like you but they all have been told a certain narrative and you know people are willing to commit violent crimes against you and you always gotta think about that when you walk you know across the city when you do your military service in your uniform and um i mean we we are currently being a little bit skeptical going outside and that's just you know like a a virus um but you know I think both sides are equally affected on this, and ultimately people need to need to stop um following the politics and just try to connect on a on a human level to resolve all all of that yeah I think there's no no other way around it because there people are very much alike, no matter where you're from but um as soon you stop listening to um extreme opinions, let it be on uh social media f- or let it be in 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 our families or in in the public uh only then and it it's really possible to to right figure out that uh situations like that that make it worse for everyone involved and not better
0: yeah i I remember covering riots especially in Hebron, which is a area. Uh, in Palestine, the West Bank, and they have yeah. some crazy riots. And it's a very complex area because there are settlements, and but, you know, Israelis are not settlements. You know, these people have been here for a long time. Yeah. But just to explain, you know, yeah, there's a Palestinian kind of city and there are people, uh, Jewish people, living pretty much in the mix of it. And there's always yeah. tensions there um not all the time but if something political or something happened then that place can just erupt to some of the biggest riots i've ever yeah. seen yeah i mean <laughs> like insane I amount need to
1: love love a little bit because thinking about it it really feels more like football sports hooligans going after each other you've mm-hmm. covered actual wars you know you yeah, have been yeah. at the front lines in the trenches
0: um, and I've gone on both sides. Like I yeah. was with, I went, I, on one riot, I would go right behind the IDF and then yeah. I would go back to the Palestinian youth and yeah. go back and forth, back and forth. And, um, you know, I learned I, I, at that time I was very young and so I was, it was very exciting and you would hear mm-hmm. tear gas or not here. You would hit, get hit by tear gas and rubber bullets. Christian got hit with a rubber bullet on the side. Um, and sometimes they'll shoot live fire. Those that's when, you know, it gets really serious. Um, so it starts out as playing, but if, when you have that many situations and tensions and it just keeps going and you let it keep going and going, going, it could escalate very quickly. Um, And so it's um it's a country I would like to go back and see some old friends and uh but it's one of those places, yeah, it's great. We take videos and we've done stories there before, but it is such a complex country. I think actually one of the best ones was uh Conan O'Brien went to um Israel and Keep the local. West Bank. Yeah. And he <laughs> did amazing video and, and yeah. used comedy. Just like Bourdain used food, he used comedy to yeah. uh, tell a story of both sides, and yeah. it's it's a it's great, I love it
1: What was for you your most memorable moment doing projects for f s not only talking about Israel but also talking about oh, yeah everything else what like what is the defining moment of when you realize that's why it's important that I do this?
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, when I was younger, I obviously being published with Vice was was a big milestone. Um, having doing a full documentary with him was great. Me and Christian flying to Baghdad. And uh, we did a documentary about this Anglican priest, Andrew White, canon Andrew White, and being able to do a full documentary and post it and publish it was amazing. And we literally thought like, okay, this is it. Everything's just going to happen and happen. And, uh, and you, and though, and so, but in the end you still have to work hard for it. Yeah. So I, I, um, I would say now the business side of just the industry has really taken the joy of just creating something now. Yeah. Um, And war journalism and conflict journalism is not something it has to be your passion, but it's not worth the risk of just going there just to take a selfie or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. so it's the
1: real world it's not instagram
0: (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) there's
1: much much worse that could happen uh to you than a sarcastic comment
0: Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's a difficult it's a tough industry you got to keep going you got to work hard Yeah. and uh i made mistakes i learned a lot um and i think the the Some of the most exciting times for me has definitely been Iraq. Um, it's that country I've probably gone to more than any other country over the 40 countries that I've been to. And I kept going, you know, even in college I was going there. And it's a place that, you know, I, I continued to go to um, yeah. and have a lot of friends there. And it's uh, such a complex country too to, to, to understand. So, and I, I was able to bring you, uh, in 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Flying, flying a drone. In the <laughs> we didn't even get to fly it. <laughs> yeah. I, got
1: it. I remember us, uh, trying to buy a drone like last minute before the flight and we finally got it and uh-huh. it was already, already, uh, a month's work (laughs) and then um it basically basically got taken by the iraqi tsa
0: yeah it was it was in Erbil. it was like the they had um you couldn't find it anywhere on the website about bringing in drones but yeah yeah, they probably still have it and use it for who knows what probably just for fun so
1: (laughs) yeah and it was definitely um to see the scale of what was going on and mm-hmm. to to see the real life impact i remember when we were at this outpost behind the kurdish lines and we um went with the iraqi military mm. and <laughs> they barely wore any uniforms it's basically just uh camouflage stuff from h&m or something like
0: that yeah sometimes. i there were iraqi mil this area was outside of kurdish areas yeah it was technically on iraqi government area and it was kind of it was probably an hour from mosul you know it yeah. was definitely i like, think
1: we could even see it in the horizon that's
0: yeah you could mosul is such A yeah. mosul is such a big city um and Yeah, there were Iraqi military there, but there was also a lot of uh, Shia militias, PMF Mm. type people there. Um, And yeah, you would see, you know, truckloads of IDPs to say displaced people from coming from Mosul to that area. Yeah. You remember that?
1: And it wouldn't stop. Oh, yeah. Constantly was a stream of people like... um, we went to this, I think it was a school or something. It was like a daycare was so...
0: school kind of thing. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And we went in there and there were already thousands, thousands of people there, a lot of young children not having anything, no toys, no proper clothes, you know, only what they basically had on themselves, the mother mothers trying to to care for them. Um, there were barely any, if not none, uh, men there um yeah i, I don't th- think they were i think they separated they yeah.
0: separated the men i believe and uh they were in another location yeah and um because it was people were just coming there truckloads so they still had to you know
1: maintain some order some order
0: but also security yeah. check people uh yeah. which i don't even know how they did because most people don't have any id there leaving and they have like a cell phone. Um, so yeah, it was, it's a pretty, it was pretty chaotic time. And at that time it was like August, I want to say, and it was blistering 110 to 120 degree heat. Yeah. Uh, And filming at those refuge or IDP camps. Uh, I don't even know how they did that it was brutal and
1: the aircon was broken in our truck so that didn't help i remember (laughs) christian and me sitting in the back i was like yeah we wish we were dead
0: (laughs) this is too much (laughs) i was somewhat used to it because i i I am from texas but even then you know it's it just burns down on you and your equipment gets hot and
1: yeah, or, like I was flying that drone over that camp, and suddenly the the iPad died, and I mm. couldn't see the drone anymore, and I basically had to fly it blind, just guessing where I was going, and somewhat the drone returned, which I have no idea how that worked, but somehow it did. Oh uh, yeah, it, was, <laughs> it brought us to our limit um, in a physical sense and brought our gear to the limit and somehow we we made it through that which you know was a big big moment Mm -hmm. um in in my personal life and definitely um gave me another perspective on life as well being there
0: yeah i've been working on because i was shooting mostly virtual reality 360 video yeah and so i'm finally getting close to because i filmed for almost like a year and a half just in three sixty. So eventually I'm gonna release it. I think probably in the summer is probably when I'll do that. And uh probably not do film festivals. Like I've done the film festival route. Yeah. I've published with other news companies, so I think I'm just going to release it release it myself. And that's kind of where I I think the journalism industry, you're gonna see a lot more independent people publishing their own content instead of yeah. publishing through traditional news. Yeah. That's kind of where I see it. I don't know. What do you think? I I
1: think we are definitely moving to personal br- uh, personal brands versus corporate brands that um, we, we get our, our content from um, because, you know, f- fill in big newspaper name here. Um, If you know it's a certain journalist that you don't find as, let's say, trustworthy or Mm -hmm. if it's even interesting uh, at the bare minimum, uh, then you're just not going to read that big newspaper as much anymore and you're more tending to listen to individuals that, I don't know, let it be um, YouTubers. Uh, let it be um, people with their own blogs. And I think YouTube and blogging has has grown up by now. You know, hmm. it's uh, it's I very interesting on the Joe Rogan's show. They were like, yeah, what is mainstream media? And isn't YouTube sort of made mainstream media if a video gets 10 times the reach what yeah uh, right. TV stations are getting? <laughs> I know. And I found this really interesting. And the word legacy media is, uh, I think... Uh, a wonderful way to describe how uh, what's happening right now that independents are making more impact and uh, in some ways also more money from what they do because they have a personal brand.
0: Exactly. You know,
1: like let's use Vice for example. You know, there's this guy Tim Poole and um, He's he crushing. definitely, yeah he he's crushing it in what he does and independent from how you think of, of what he makes but um he certainly can live from that
0: hey i'm pause you real quick my dog yeah. wants to get out hold on yeah i see that. <laughs> this it's a sponsor break hold on guys i'm gonna let yeah. my dog out of my office All right, that was our sponsor, Mumford, my dog.
1: So Mumford Designs.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, that's why I think I, I agree completely when it comes to, and right now most of the independent content are bloggers or Joe Rogan, but you're going to see more people like Tim Poole who are journalist uh, background, start doing more, start doing more like him.
1: Yeah. And I also like in in my uh, hobby world, there is uh, a company out of L.A., Donut Media, which, you know, like when people like me, we used to watch Top Gear. We used to watch, uh, you know, these these kinds of BBC, whatever. And right now we are at the point where just a bunch of people can say, hey, let's do a YouTube channel. And they get millions of subscribers already in such a short time. And now they're one of the main news sources for enthusiasts um, about that. And, you know, for many people, all of these beauty bloggers, they don't buy Vogue anymore or any of that stuff. They just follow uh, people that tell their own stories. Or when you look at um, gaming, you don't really read gaming magazines anymore you watch pewdiepie and you're up to date with yeah <laughs> with uh what's funny or not um and or what's what's currently a trend in the thing or there's it's just so much more diverse that's basically what i'm yeah. what i'm trying to say sure, everyone finds their niche
0: i'm sure people like joe rogan who've been doing i bet they've been offered so much money to do a network you know yeah. to move their show but that's yeah. just and i'm sure he was hit up for that for a long time ago and Mm -hmm. his podcast is probably worth way more he gets to do what he wants to do yeah he can say whatever he wants yeah um and he owns the rights to it and he played the long game not just short not the short game
1: exactly and you need not only the commitment to do whatever you do in the long game like you know, podcasting is one of these things that are exciting for three or four episodes. And then you really realize it's it's work. Yeah. <laughs> it's something no, it is. that you need to keep doing on a regular basis. And um it's definitely for creatives, keep the control over your content. If now, you can afford yeah. it, stay independent, or if you have some sort of employment, still have an independent project as a second. Um, maybe not exit strategy, but as a second um, path to what makes you happy that you can operate by your own rules and, you know, do what you're passionate about. Because I went through the same stuff, as you said, like the business side took the fun out of the job for me. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm, my livelihood is purely business, nothing creative. But then my creativity after years of not having the urge to do anything creative anymore because i felt so burned out from it um, you know you grow more and you you can become better because you care and you volunteer to do it versus um basically having to to show up nine to five in an office in an agency or an broadcasting network and just have to follow instructions which for some people works but i think for a lot of creative creatives it doesn't
0: no, I would like even five years ago or even two years ago, I would tell people, yeah, how, what's, you know, getting published, you know, writing a short, you know, pitch to an editor and everything. Yeah. Now I tell people, yeah, continue to pitch, get published. That's one thing you have to have on your portfolio and you want yeah. to try to, you know, make money. And so, but, that doesn't stop you for creating your own content now. And that's the long game I, it, because I think it's just going to get harder and harder to do this kind yeah. of stuff. Who knows? What if YouTube starts charging people, you know? Yeah. Um, what if the internet, you know, just becomes commoditized and doing this kind of stuff becomes kind of broadcast, you know, regulated where you can't say everything. So now yeah. is your chance. I mean, we're
1: already somewhat there, but I think right now there's enough dynamic to push back on that. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you can't you can adjust pay your bills from, from uh, thoughts and prayers. Like, you need to make money out of it. But I think um, that's why I said, you know, YouTube has grown up is because they figured out a way to monetize that. The right. creators, not only by YouTube ad money, but also having this episode is sponsored by... Mm -hmm. fill in sponsor name here um, to really for them to be able to keep doing what they're doing and you know not having only uh, yeah to rely on one one way to to make money like you do when you take a corporate job which I'm not trying to say it's bad I work at a big corporation myself but Mm -hmm. um, you can't be romantic about uh, business life and um, you are romantic about what you do, creative,
0: right? No, hundred um, percent. I'm I'm kind of working on a a uh, short documentary uh, project because um, the Nepal earthquake anniversary, when it hit, is coming up end of April. Really? Yeah, it'll be five years. April twenty fifth, I believe, is when the earthquake hit. And, uh, and I still have so much footage that I never used. And I think that's one, I'm kind of working on cause I, I still want to do YouTube videos that are more, you know, documentary film style, not really how to yeah, videos, but more because
1: documentary stuff is timeless. You know, what happened in the past will still be relevant in the, right. in the future versus how to like, if someone told, you know, is specialized on how to stuff, you yeah, it's that, a different, it's a faster, faster business model or a faster content strategy, you know, you're basically reacting on what's out there right now, but history mm-hmm. is uh, as relevant in 10 years, how as relevant as it is today, but in 10 years, you have the chance to look at it back with some distance to it
0: exactly that's why if i am going to make short videos or anything like that it would be like podcast video podcast because uh yeah the short game is doing these how to do five camera hacks and you know to and the other one is let's tech reviews is big but tech is going to change in a year yeah and so i i really want to make videos that are timeless like you say and yeah and, uh, if I do eight videos in a year, that's great. That's, that's plenty of each one that I really care about and put time yeah. into it. Um, but yeah, Nepal was kind of a Nepal earthquake was, uh, something we both covered. I was there pretty much right after it hit. Um, and you were there right after I left covering a lot of the aftermath of it. Yeah. Um, I still it's still today one of the probably the biggest things just timeline wise for me. Uh it was such a crazy chaotic time. Natural disasters, one of the first natural disaster projects that uh or not projects but And the
1: scale it, was insane.
0: Right like it felt like the whole it, world it, was watching and yeah.
1: yeah. It it brought the whole country back to the stone age basically mm-hmm. um, and to to think about you know how i arrived i think two weeks after it happened you you went by you basically went there almost while it was happening like it wasn't yes. much time from uh the f- first earthquake uh big shake to you landing there right um, correct. so what i saw probably is way less dramatic of what you did uh because when you were there the situation still was developing faster than two weeks later where things already have a little bit came back to some kind of order and i remember um craig miller and i driving um through with with a little jeep basically indian version of a jeep uh Driving through these villages in the Himalayas, and some of the locals told me, "Yeah, that used to be my village, and there's still like somewhat of two thousand people buried under these stones
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that was really spooky in a way, because you know there was life the city is at roads, children still are playing there or playing there again, but their parents or grandparents are still buried under these stones and they had no means of, um, yeah, Mm -hmm. getting them out of there. And, um, I think that was besides this, this beautiful kind spirits of the Nepalese people was, uh, for me, the biggest, um, and most shocking experience there.
0: Yeah. It was on our flight heading to Kathmandu it was majority of the passengers were all first responders, aid organizations from France or Canada. I mean, everyone was coming and NGO Woodstock. Oh my gosh. It was madness. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, Christian, I talked about it in one of the podcasts. I actually checked in the bag and I can't believe I did that. Because so many people were not getting their bags and you would just see in the terminal just bags piling up. And I didn't even have to check in the bag. I just checked in a bag that had my clothes. It was none of my gear, but uh, I got so lucky that my bag came up and I was so worried I wasn't going to have it. Um, So that's a good thing to know. When a natural disaster hits hard and you're going, try to not pack a bag or check in a bag.
1: Uh, At least get your get your expensive stuff in your carry on. Yeah, everything. That's basically what I still until do until today. Like I get the things that I need, I get in the carry on, and the stuff that I Mm -hmm. have not as much of a problem with losing goes into the checked checked bag. Exactly.
0: No, it was it was a country when that was happening. It was information was really hard to figure out. I think most people thought there was destruction in Kathmandu, mainly in the old part of the city, but most of the real bad destruction were out in the villages, really hard places to get to in some places where you have to use helicopters or all-terrain vehicles, and then you have to wait for certain roads to clear because of landslides. But. Yeah, just taking these photos and taking these videos of these people's lives were completely normal. And then Mother Nature just boom, you know, yeah. and earthquake was I don't know how long the earthquake was. I think it was in the minutes. Um then all of a sudden their life has changed forever. And I remember the in back in Kathmandu they were doing cremation. And I just remember them burning hundreds and hundreds of bodies all throughout the day and into the night. You know, it was, yeah. you know, having what seemed like 60 fires at one time burning yeah. nonstop. Uh, and it was, unless you didn't have the right local people, you were just going to be stuck in Kathmandu. And yeah. there's, you would see tons no Yeah. You, you're not going to do anything. And fuel was hard to get to you. There weren't that many vehicles. So we were lucky enough to partner with someone like Craig.
1: Yeah.
0: um, Who's not with us right now anymore. And he had a NGO, which is still going on uh, called thirst no more. And Craig had all the right local connections, partners and did some amazing work What was it like for you to spend time with Craig and taking some photos and video for him?
1: Um, Absolutely amazing. He was definitely a dream to work with. You know, like everyone, especially when you do work that makes you sleep deprived and hungry for the most of the time. (laughs) Uh, Everyone gets grouchy uh, for a little bit at some time. But besides, uh, besides that, it was, you know, this dude knew what's up. He could uh, make very effective on a small scale uh, help the locals to help themselves. And um, that's super rare in what I've seen of NGOs around the world, no matter if it was Iraq, the Balkan crisis, uh, Nepal or Tanzania or everything like that. A lot of NGOs, they come, they do their little circus and then they uh, go away and, you know, applaud themselves, how awesome they are. But Craig always did connect with local people that already have taken responsibility and he just enabled them to help their own people on a sustainable long term way. And um, yes, we were there also to document what they were doing which is super important because people that give their money, they need to know that it's arriving in the right spots. And a lot of NGOs (laughs) are flying places like, you know, to have a little Woodstock thing going on. Oh, yeah, we're going together to the place and we're doing our thing. And there was one NGO that um, instead of bringing food or medical or hygiene or basic survival kits, they just were buying Bibles. It's like, yeah, they need Jesus more than food.
0: And it Um, was mainly because they weren't, they didn't know how to get the supplies. It wasn't because they purposely did it. It was because, oh, we don't have the resources to get supplies right now. They probably eventually did, but at that time they had to go do something.
1: yeah Yeah, which still is um don't get me wrong uh it's still a waste of money because (laughs) maybe you can't get 50 tons of rice but you sure can for the same money get a few box of protein power bars from one of the uh camping backpacker shops that were still operating and like if you really tried or if you wanted you don't need to go to camps that are run by other organizations to
0: credit for it yeah there was that's the biggest thing is even in Iraq, you know they would take photos at these IDP camps. They're gigantic camps. You know, yeah. some of them have probably close to forty to fifty thousand people, and they're posting photos saying, "Yeah, we're helping people from Mosul fleeing." I was like, "Okay, these people have fled Mosul like two years ago." Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, you're technically right, but you're also wrong, and this is a UN camp. And yeah. yeah, you really do see during natural disasters in Nepal. You you really do see if you're if you're not prepared, you're you're not going to do anything. And so yeah. and you're just better, vulnerable.
1: Better stay home and give the money to someone that knows what they're doing.
0: Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, I was able to go back to to do a VR film of like one year one year later after the earthquake and it was still in the rebuilding phases, especially in the uh, remote villages. And a lot of the schools yep. were completely destroyed still in makeshift schools, um, you know, under a tent kind of thing, very little surprise, but now it's being five years coming up. That's just crazy. It doesn't feel that long. I'm curious no, it how doesn't. I'm curious how the country is doing. So maybe this year we'll we'll take a trip and and do something like that.
1: If we can travel again this year, who knows? <laughs> I know. Maybe we just put put on the VR goggles and yeah, uh, right. watch the the 360 shots that you made there. That is still one of my favorite. Yeah. Uh, documentaries in general. Yeah. yeah,
0: that was like one of the early, That was still when you had to, you know, use six GoPro cameras and stitch and manually stitch it together and it was a nightmare ain't um, much but it's honest work <laughs> exactly um so yeah simon um thanks for coming on i think we're gonna have you come on every once in a while and sure uh, i need to do your podcast at some point too yeah um is there how do people find you where, where some links or you know how do people find your podcast
1: um, basically, just go to stayingathome. dot com, which writes exactly as the Bee Gees song "Staying Alive," but just at home. Nice. And um, yeah, that was the inspiration <laughs> for the <that idea>. title. <laughs> um, yeah, and I have all episodes linked there. Um, I try to publish every Saturday if I'm able to and if the, the recording doesn't get messed up. And, um, yeah, if anyone knows someone that would be interesting to talk to also send them always my way because yeah, for sure. there's only so much, so much I can do from here. And yeah, Dylan, it was a big pleasure to, to be on here and, you know, go back in time, how our friendship and our work together has started and to literally now look back off almost a decade of uh, collaboration between continents. Um, There's definitely nothing, not much in my life that I've done with my work that I'm so proud of than the projects I I did with you and Christian, for sure. And um, I hope once all of this uh, Kung Flu stuff is over, um, we are getting out on the road again and, uh, you know, do what what we like the most. Um, and I'm very excited to see you soon.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, it's, uh, right now is, you know, I try to see the, the light in things. And I think this, at this time, it forces us to be creative, think about things. You know, I've been thinking about my career and things that I want to do, uh, and doing more stuff like this. I think that's, that's one of the positive things, at least for me. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Simon, thanks, man, and uh, appreciate coming on, and uh, we'll talk soon. We'll do. Take care.